You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. We're going to start a new series today called Prayer Changing Us to Change the World. On Tuesdays, typically I try to write a blog post uh, on our uh, church website, and usually I kind of take that blog post and I kind of reflect on the previous Sunday, and I I didn't get to it this week, uh, for those of you that follow that, I'm not sure how many of you actually read it or not, but um, a couple weeks ago um, when I wrote that blog post, I referenced this quote from Dwight Eisenhower, and in case you didn't read that, I wanted to use it today as an introduction. In his inaugural address in 1953, he stated, Whatever America hopes to bring to pass in the world must first come to pass in the heart of America. It was a statement by Eisenhower as he was laying out his presidential platform and what he hoped that the country would achieve under his leadership and not only what it would achieve for itself, but what it would achieve for the world around it. And it was a statement that was driven home to the people that day to say to them, whatever you want to see happen around you needs to happen in you first. I want to take his words and apply them to God's people, to the church. That whatever you or I as the church may want to see happen around us needs to happen within us first. Whatever we would want to see come to pass in the world and the community around us needs to come to pass in the heart of the church first. We long to see change in our world. I know sometimes personal change or routine change is not uh, looked upon favorably, but in a, in a broad scale or a grand scale, change around us is typically something that we long for. We see people change. We long to see situations changed, communities changed. And one of the ways that I believe God does this is through the gift of prayer. Prayer is an activity designed by God. It's made powerful through our communion with Christ, and it's emboldened in our lives by the work and the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And there are some things that prayer does in the life of a son or daughter of God. For example, in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, there's a whole sort of listing of things that occur in that prayer that he's leading us to. He starts off with that prayer includes praise and worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. It's saying that in our prayer we should incorporate praise and worship to the Father. There's situational praying that he's teaching about. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we pray for people and as we pray for situations and we pray for things around us, we pray situationally that his will and his kingdom would be done. He teaches us to pray for provision, both physical and Give us our daily bread and spiritual. Forgive us our debts. In that prayer, he teaches that prayer should be a prayer of reflection because he includes there after that moment, as we have forgiven our debtors or as we have forgiven those who trespassed against us, depending on how you learned it. And so a moment of reflection, are we doing that as well? And then a point of protection towards the end. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All of those things, praise and worship and provision and protection and all those things I mentioned are things that can occur through prayer. Prayer provides God an opportunity to act or to answer. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11 is the, is the passage where Jesus teaches, ask, seek, knock, 
He goes on to talk about earthly fathers. If you who are earthly fathers know how to give something good to your kids, how much more does your heavenly father know what to give good to you? So ask, seek, and knock. In 1 Samuel 1, Hannah, though she was barren, prayed for a son and received a son. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha's servant is in fear because this great army is surrounding the city that they're in. And Elisha prays, God, would you let my servant see your protection? And God shows that servant a vision of spiritual protection around that city. But honestly, sometimes the answer is no. David asked, maybe in the form of a prayer, maybe not. But he asked God, can I be the one to build your holy place, your temple? And God said, no. The disciples asked in Luke 9, Jesus, would you call down fire from heaven and consume that, that Samaritan village that we just passed for their disobedience, for their, for their rebellion against you? And Jesus said, no. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, and I pleaded with God to remove it and what was God's answer ironically it was one of the songs we just sang my grace is enough for you God's answer was no so these are some things that we see that the Bible teaches us about prayer the things we're supposed to pray for how we're supposed to pray that God sometimes answers and sometimes he doesn't but for us for the next few Sundays we're going to focus on this aspect of prayer that prayer changes us Prayer is designed, among other things, to change us. When prayer is done correctly, and when I say done correctly, I don't want you to think I'm speaking in terms of a formula or a process or a if you do A plus B equals C kind of a thing, but I mean correctly from our hearts, from our right motives, from our spirit, not our flesh. When prayer is done correctly, it changes us. Billy Graham said it just very succinctly. Before prayer changes others, it first changes us. Before you or I should ever pray, Lord, change my spouse or change my kids or change the people I work with or change my teachers or change my classmates or change the other people in the church. Before we should ever pray that, our prayer should be, Lord, change me. Change me. Oswald Chambers, who wrote the devotional, My Most for His Highest, which birthed the WWJD movement of the past few decades, he wrote it this way, God has established things so that prayer on the basis of redemption, that is God having redeemed us, God having forgiven us, prayer on the basis of redemption changes the way a person looks at things. And I would add to Oswald's words there, it's not just that it changes the way we look at things, it should change the way we look at people. So Mark 11, 20 through 25 today, our first Sunday in a series of a few Sundays this month to see how it is that prayer changes us. So Mark 11, 20 through 25, if you want to follow along with me. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we start today with lessons from a fig tree. Where does this fig tree come from? In the same chapter in Mark 11, look at verses 12, 13, and 14. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. He meaning Jesus. Uh, just as a side note, I love it when the scripture points to Jesus' humanity. That he felt hunger. That he wept. That he had compassion. That the, all the things you and I experienced, Jesus experienced. The following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Lessons from a fig tree. This may seem an odd work by Jesus, or an odd statement of Jesus to curse the fig tree. May no one ever eat from you again. He sees it, and he sees it in leaf, according to the scripture. And even though verse 13 says that it was not yet season uh, for figs, meaning it was not yet the harvest time for figs, when the fig tree sprouted leaves, it also sprouted edible buds that would become the full fruit. And so the presence of leaves meant the presence of fruit, not yet fully mature, not yet fully ready to harvest, but edible fruit nonetheless. And so when Jesus sees this, and he sees the leaves on this tree, but he goes to it and does not find even the edible buds on it, he curses it. Why does he do this? This seems harsh for Jesus to come along and have this sort of uh, action or reaction on a fig tree. But we understand as we walk through the scriptures that this is a physical action designed for spiritual teaching. In Mark uh, chapter 12, next chapter over, the Pharisees try to trap him and they say, uh, we, we know you know all things, should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, bring me a coin. Who's on it? Caesar. Give to Caesar what's his, give to God what is his. He takes something physical an object lesson, and he turns it into something spiritual. And that's what he's doing here. Now, time doesn't really allow for us today to, to get into this, but I would encourage you this week, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch base on the blog post this week as well. There is a correlation throughout Scripture, particularly through the Old Testament, between Israel and the fig tree. And Israel is often seen through the Old Testament in terms of a fig tree that is not producing fruit, or sometimes as a vine that is not producing fruit, meaning it was not doing what God was asking it as a nation, as a people to do. And so there's no doubt in my mind that the disciples, seeing this representation of a fig tree not producing fruit and Jesus causing this curse on it, they had put two and two together in my mind. Not only that, but elsewhere, Jesus speaks of such a thing in terms of people. John 15, 1 and 2. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. People like to ask me sometimes, is Christianity easy or hard? Well, it's not easy. Not when you speak of a loving father who looks at you and says, oh, great, you're bearing fruit. Let me cut you back a little. Pruning is not easy. But God does so that we may enjoy more fruit or that he may enjoy more fruit in our lives. And so Jesus does this to this fig tree. And then if you follow along in Mark 11, verses 15 through 19, he comes to the temple. They're exploiting people within the temple. They're robbing people within the temple. And so he cleanses the temple of all the people that were doing this. And this is where we begin to see sort of this spiritual correlation. Just as the fig tree had an appearance of fruit but was bearing none, the temple had an appearance of being the place of God the holy dwelling place of God, but indeed it was useless for its fruit was rotten. And so Jesus is teaching them through this that you can have an appearance and no fruit. You can have an appearance but have rotten fruit. And so as he's teaching that through them, they then pass by, verse 20 again, and they see the fig tree withered away. Peter remembered, said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. The scripture says withered away to its roots. It means it's not just that the leaves fell off. It's not just that the stem began to dry up. It withered away all the way to its roots, all the way to that which holds its life. And Peter seems astonished, apparently, for the short time that this has taken in this fig tree's life. And look at Jesus' response to Peter and to the disciples, because verse 22 says, them... Jesus answered them, have faith in God. It seems like a very odd response from Jesus to Peter and his disciples. Have faith in God. Why Jesus speaks of faith here? Because the work that had been done against the fig tree had come about by his spoken word. Jesus is turning their focus off of what has happened to the fig tree and back onto himself and God. To teach them that God's word has power. And to teach them that they have faith, but they don't just have random faith or blind faith, as some people like to say, or faith in someone or something else, but their faith is specifically to be in God. Simply having faith is not enough. You and I can have faith and have it in wrong places and wrong people. And so he's teaching the disciples and us, have faith in God. He's, he's reminding them, you should not be so surprised that I, being God, representing God and his kingdom, was able just to speak something to this fig tree, and it happened. And the reality of it is they should not have been surprised. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, they've seen Jesus heal a man who had demons They've seen him heal a leper and a paralyzed man. They've seen him, by his very words, rebuke the storm and the seas and calm all of that. He's controlled the legions of demons that lived in the man inside the tomb. Causing a fig tree to wither away to its roots is kind of child's play compared to everything else that Jesus has done. And so his statement to them, have faith in God, is a reminder. You know what I can do. You've seen what I can do. You know who God is and what he can do. Have faith. And then he continues with this reminder with this example of the mountain. 
Look there again at verse 24 or 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus is clearly using all in language hyperbole. There's no expectation here for Jesus to say to anyone, you could actually go to Mount Rainier, believe it with all your heart, and cast it all into the ocean. Now, one day Jesus will cause all the mountains to crumble. One day at his return, the earth will shake and shudder. But he's not speaking of us being able to do that or his disciples being able to do that any more than from Mark 10, 25, he was expecting anyone to believe that an actual camel could travel through the eye of a needle. He's using hyperbole. You use hyperbole to make a direct point or to emphasize something. If I say to you after church today, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, I obviously am not meaning that I expect someone to put a horse on the table in front of me with a knife and a fork. I'm using hyperbole. And so he uses this hyperbole about moving a mountain for a couple reasons. One, moving mountains was a common expression of the Jewish teachers of the day to tell people of the great difficulties they faced in their lives. That great difficulties, great situations were akin to mountains being in your way. And that faith in God, you could move that mountain or pass by that mountain or get through or over above that mountain. Secondly, the point he's making is this, that with faith rightly placed... Remember back to his first phrase, have faith in God. Don't have faith in yourself. Don't have faith in somebody else in church around you. Or have faith in God. Faith rightly placed with true belief can accomplish much. And he begins to drive home that in the second point today, which is receiving and forgiving. Mark 11, 24 and 25. Read it again there. He says, therefore, based on what I just told you, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Whatever you ask for, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Man, that's a heavy statement, isn't it? Because on the surface, it looks like Jesus is saying, here's the magic formula. Ask for it, believe that you received it, and it'll be yours. All right, let's test this. Jesus, I need a Jeep, and I believe it's in my front yard right now. It's not there yet. Maybe I just didn't have enough faith. You ever have anybody say that to you? He's not giving us a formula here. We, we know from earlier examples today that there are times that he says no. That prayer is not designed to be this thing that just we ask it, we believe it, God grants it no matter what. There are things that we sometimes could ask God for in faith, believing that we would receive it, that he says no. We cannot ask God to do something that he cannot do. Now, before you get angry, I'm not suggesting God's limited in power or ability or anything of that nature, but there are things in the Scripture that says God cannot do. God cannot lie. He cannot sin or be tempted by sin, nor does he tempt any of us by evil. He does not break promises. So we cannot pray prayers that ask him to do those things because that is outside of his character to do those things. 
God's not a sideshow attraction. In Acts 8, Simon the magician sees what the work of the Holy Spirit is doing in the disciples and the apostles' lives, and he asks to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit, that he may yield it. God's not a sideshow attraction. God will not hinder another person's free will. You can pray for your spouse. You can pray for your children. You can pray for that person you work with, someone else in your, in your church community, someone, a, a teacher, a student, whatever. And you pray for them, pray for them, pray for them. And God will call them, I believe. God will move in their lives. But ultimately, he leaves that decision to them. He's not going to alter their free will. God is not a spiritual ATM. It, it, it's, it's no good for an earthly parent to give their child everything they want. It's just not. Sometimes your child asks for things that they're not mature enough or ready to handle. Sometimes they ask for things that you as a parent are going, but I've got something better in mind. There are biblical reasons why prayers don't get answered. James, in his letter, has two examples. In chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, he talks about being doubting and being double-minded as not receiving what we ask for. In James 4.3, he says that sometimes we ask with wrong motives. And that's why God says no. In 1 Peter 3.7, men who are married, hold on to yourself for here for just a moment. Peter says that sometimes men's prayers are hindered because they don't show their wife the proper honor. You ever heard a sermon on that one? 1 John 5, 13 and 15, John says we know that he will do anything we ask if it's in accordance to his will. Scripture in other places says unconfessed sin, continual unrepentant sin, hypocritical, prideful prayer, and so on and so on. There are many reasons why our prayers don't get answered. There are many reasons why Jesus is not saying here, just ask it in this way and God will give you whatever you want. Because the sum of Scripture does not allow that teaching. And here in verse 25, Jesus gives us yet another reason for unanswered prayer. It's a failure to forgive. Now, he doesn't necessarily tie 24 and 25 together as we would maybe like him to. He doesn't come out and say, well, if you forgive others, then everything you pray for you'll get. But clearly there's a connection here by Jesus. Clearly there's a connection who says, while you stand praying, and standing was a, a popular uh, for lack of a better word, prayer stance among the people. But you don't have to stand. You can kneel. You can sit. Uh, you can pray as you drive along. Just don't cl close your eyes while you're driving, but just pray, you know. Uh, prayer, prayer is available anytime, anywhere, any place. But he was basically saying to them, as you stand praying, as you stand praying for the things of verse 23 and 24, see the connection? Forgive. Anything anybody has you have against anybody, forgive. And this is where Oswald got it right. That prayer is built upon the foundation of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus to God. Everything that God may give us, grant us, or do for us is birthed in the power of redemption that he has over us. And forgiveness is critical to that. If we withhold forgiveness... We are denying God's power in our lives. 
There's a place where Paul writes to Timothy, and he talks about people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. And I think sometimes we read that and we think, oh, yeah, he's talking about all the people out in the world who act like they have God. No, he's talking to Timothy as a pastor of people in church. And to withhold forgiveness and mercy from someone is to have a form of godliness but to deny its power. It's to have the leaves of the fig tree with no fruit. And if we ask or demand from God in our prayers with an unforgiving spirit towards others, we should never expect that our prayers would be answered. It is inconsistent for a person who's been forgiven as much as we have been forgiven to believe that we could withhold that from anyone else. Andrew Murray, in one of his books on prayer, puts it this way. Every prayer rests on God's pardoning grace. Every prayer you utter for yourself, for someone else, for every situation, good, bad, and otherwise, every single prayer you utter, every repetitive prayer that you utter for the hundredth time, every prayer rests on God's pardoning grace. There is no prayer, no request, no desire for God to act that does not have its foundation upon anything else other than his grace for us. It is his redemptive work, his grace in my life, in your life, that enable you to live to be able to ask. It is his redemptive grace in my life, in your life, that empowers us to live by the Holy Spirit in order that we may ask. And it is in this sense that prayer changes us. It changes us, or at least that it should change us. Notice again how Jesus states it. Whenever you stand praying, meaning continuing from the other things that you're asking for in verses 23 and 24, continuing from the things that you believe that you'll receive, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses built upon his redemptive grace. Forgive. This is the way prayer changes us. Understand this about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not designed to change them. Forgiveness is designed to change us. I have witnessed in multiple counseling sessions times of prayer with people who forgave someone who had long ago died for something they had done or said. And witness that person become free by the power of God's Holy Spirit because they forgave them. It did not change that person. It did not change that moment in history. It did not relieve the consequences of that moment in history. But in that moment, it released that person. Forgiving others doesn't mean that they will automatically see any fault or responsibility that they may have. Matter of fact, probably just the opposite. I don't need to be forgiven. I didn't do anything wrong. Okay, well, I still forgive. Forgiving others does not mean the relationship will immediately be restored to its previous state. We've been restored to God in his full forgiveness, but that's because he is God and we are not. And when two human beings enter into this, some want to hold on to things just a little longer sometimes. The great theologian Garth Brooks <laughs> had a song called Bury the Hatchet. And said, we bury it, but we leave the handle exposed. And I'm paraphrasing it. 
bury the hatchet, but leave the handle accessible just so we can pick it up again. Forgiving others ensures a change within us. That when we pray, and then when we're praying to God and asking, God, would you give me this? Would you bless me with this? Would you change this situation? Would you, would you do this for me? And I'm praying in faith, and I'm asking you that simultaneously we're saying, oh, and by the way, God, I forgive. I forgive. And we forgive others so that we would not hold on to that bitter, disgusting, life-draining emotion of unforgiveness. I'm going to close today with this. Corey Tinboom. Hopefully you learned about her in school or will learn about her in school. If you have not or are not, then get yourself to a library or go online and learn about Corey Tinboom and her family. Arrested by the Nazis for their work in sheltering other Jewish people in their home, she was sent to a concentration camp in Ravensbrook, and she tells the story of forgiveness in the book called The Hiding Place. After the war, she traveled throughout Europe and in particular traveled throughout Germany, telling of God's grace and his goodness and his love and his mercy and, yes, his forgiveness. And I'm going to do this in a very synopsis sort of way for time. But she tells this story. She was in Munich. She had just spoken she said, it was 1947, I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. The others were exiting the room as she had done, been, been completed her speaking. He was moving towards her. One moment I saw the overcoat, the brown hat. The next moment I saw a blue uniform with a visored cap and skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of having to walk naked past this man. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrook, where we were sent. He spoke to her. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. And she said, no, he did not remember me. And she said, but since that time, he said, I have become a Christian and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, and he put his hand out, will you forgive me? She talks about how long she stood there, frozen, with this man in front of her. She says, I had to do it. I knew it. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. And I stood there with the coldness clutching in my heart. I prayed silently, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, she said, I thrust my hand into the hand that was stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. A current started in my shoulder, raced through my arm into our joined hands, and a healing war warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bring tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. She said, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Are your prayers or are my prayers being hindered 
because of an unforgiving heart. We pray for things in our community. We pray for things in our homes and in our church and the world around us. And sometimes I'm sure I'm not the only one that goes, God, why is nothing happening? Perhaps because our prayers are not changing us. Perhaps because we're busy praying, God, change them and them and them and them and them. And we're not doing very much praying of God, change us. Are we expecting God to bless us with what we ask for? While really hoping and praying that others will be cursed. As you stand praying, forgive. Forgive anyone who has anything against you. Jesus does not give us the option here in Mark to put any sort of limitation or any sort of definition to his command. To anyone, anything against you. God changes. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.